Hello, you're listening to the My Care Champion Cast. I'm your host, Lucy Shimatero of the Michigan Health and Hospital Association. Each month, we invite industry experts and thought leaders to discuss relevant healthcare issues. Join us as we explore key topics that affect Michigan hospitals, health systems, and the health of our communities. Hi, you're listening to the My Care Champion Cast. And not only that, you're listening to our first episode of 2022. So welcome and Happy New Year. I'm excited to introduce our guest, Dr. Michael Leonard, who will be joining me in just a moment. But first, to give some background, Dr. Leonard is with Safe and Reliable Healthcare and has worked with healthcare organizations both nationally and internationally to identify clear, effective, and sustainable ways to enhance patient and family-centered care. He also helps organizations improve leadership, develop a culture of safety, work collaboratively, and become highly reliable while creating an environment of continuous learning and improvement. We're also looking forward to having Dr. Leonard as one of our keynote speakers at Breakthrough, which is our major membership meeting coming up on February 17th and 18th. For those who don't know or are not already registered, this year's event is going to focus on examining the evolution of the pandemic and its impact, and we'll be covering some key topics like the workforce shortage and health equity. There's a lot of great resources, speakers, and opportunities to network, so we highly recommend anyone who hasn't registered to do so. And fun fact, if you do before January 28th, you get a pretty significant discount. Anyone who's interested in learning more can head to the education and events page of mha.org, or if it's easier, we've also provided a link in the description below. So to move into today's episode, as you may have guessed by the title, Dr. Leonard is here to share his personal experience with COVID-19, and as someone in the medical field, he has a lot of great insight. Without further ado, Dr. Leonard, welcome to the show. Yeah, wonderful to be with you. Thank you. Yeah, well, we certainly appreciate uh, you taking time out of your busy schedule to be here. And before we dive into your story, can you provide our listeners an update on the state of COVID in Michigan right now? Yeah, um, I, I think hopefully we're starting to see COVID peak nationally. Um, there was a great article in the New York Times today looking at COVID, uh, the rate of COVID by region, and it seems to be uh, dropping back a little bit on the East Coast. There's a hint of it doing that in the upper Midwest. Uh, unfortunately, the, the COVID incidence uh, before this Omicron surge was at a reasonably high level, which is probably why your hospitals are absolutely slammed and underwater. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is, there's a hint of sunlight on the horizon that this may be uh, uh, heading the right direction. Obviously, there's a significant lag time uh, between rising cases and hospitalizations, and unfortunately, people don't survive. So mm-hmm. I think we certainly have several more weeks of a lot of clinical duress, but but there's some hints that things will get better um, right. in the near future. That's great to hear. And and just to echo something our CEO, Brian Peters, has mentioned, the numbers are trending in a positive direction, but we're certainly not out of the woods. And our healthcare workforce is still under tremendous strain, as you mentioned. So it's certainly important that we remain vigilant um, and, and continue on with that public safety protocol that we know slows the spread of COVID. Isn't that right? Absolutely. And, and it's probably worth mentioning the most recent CDC data out in the last day or two is that um, people that are vaccinated, 65 and above, uh, 49 times less likely to be hospitalized with a risk of death. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Um, so a number of people who've been vaccinated and boosted have gotten Omicron, but those tend to be extremely mild, more like a head cold last couple of days. Um, so we're just continuing to see uh, the benefits of vaccination. And, and obviously we have much better ability to treat and therapeutics than we did in the spring of 2020 when this initially started. Right, right. And by this point, a majority of us have either gotten COVID, myself included, um, have known someone who's gotten COVID and, and tragically in some cases have lost loved ones to COVID. So you're here today to share your personal experience with COVID as someone in the medical field who I can only assume took every precaution to avoid getting infected. So can you tell us about that experience? Uh, yes. Um, you know, in the work we do, I'm an anesthesiologist by background, but really migrated into the world of high reliability and patient safety um, about 15 years ago. Um, we have the privilege of working with a number of organizations, and a long history of partnership with the Michigan Hospital Association, among others. Um, in early March, and I'm in my latter 60s, um, no health problems. Uh, kind of a fitness nut who's on the CrossFit gym three or four days a week, wow. able to keep up with the, the 50 year olds. Um, <laughs> and it was ironically the last trip. Um, we do a lot of work with hospital systems. A lot of that tends to be being present, FaceTime, building relationships. Um, and it was already March. And I, I, um, it was one last trip to Washington, D.C. We, we work with the military health system, Walter Reed work with some private systems, and, and and it was a series of meetings to really socialize the fact that we were going virtual. Um, I came back, uh, flew out of Dulles Airport, um, had to connect through Chicago, uh, and what I was not aware of, this is uh, around March uh, 14th, 15th, is that um, the United States government had threatened to close off travel from Europe. And that precipitated a stampede of hundreds of thousands of people trying to get back into the country. Um, you can find pictures on the New York Times and on the web of, of literally 10,000 people um, standing, you know, shoulder to shoulder for six hours at a time trying to get through immigration. Um, right. And for, for context, this is 2020, not 2021. Yeah. No, I'm okay. sorry. It was the spring of 2020. It was... It was uh, mid-March. And mm-hmm. when I was traveling, um, again, I wasn't wearing a mask. In retrospect, that would have been a very good idea, but nobody was. Um, I had hand sanitizer. I was staying in hotels that I know were empty, uh, the ones the flight crews use and from the international arrivals. So, you know, until eight o'clock at night, you're the only person there. Um, and so apparently I got infected there. Um, Two days later, I developed uh, cold or flu-like symptoms, Um, have a pulse ox, was well oxygenated, live at 8,000 feet. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, for 11 days, I was fine. And in fact, got a little sicker on day 11, went to a local hospital to try and get a test. They couldn't do one because they were short and I wasn't being admitted. Had a a normal chest x-ray. a day and a half later, I frankly tried to die. And uh, wow. my sat went from 97 to 90. My wife said, you don't look very good. She's a, a nurse. And uh, said, walk up the driveway, which is slightly uphill. I walked about 500 feet, and my oxygen saturation went to 
Um, oh my gosh. Being an anesthesiologist, my brain said, you're in serious trouble. Mm -hmm. We literally got in the car, drove to the University of Colorado, um, and I sat, and that's 2,500 feet lower in altitude, and my sat never improved. It stayed 70 for the next hour. Um, I went to the emergency department, and, and what was foremost in my mind was uh, my greatest fear was I'm going to say, go sit over here for a while in the corner. And mm -hmm. as I said to my wife subsequently, I, I was kind of in physician save my life mode. I knew how sick I was and that I wasn't oxygenating. Um, I walked in. Ironically, there was a physician standing there, an anesthesiologist. And he said to me very casually, like I probably said to a thousand other people, you know, what's wrong with you? And I said, well, I can't breathe. And I said, I really can't breathe. I'm an anesthesiologist. I need to be intubated. I need mm -hmm. to be put on a ventilator, which seemed to capture his attention. He said, I've never heard that before. I said, well, <laughs> I've never said that before. Right. Um, and all I recall is um, they laid me down. I sent a text to my wife that says, I will be coming home. Um, mm -hmm. And I woke up 36 days later, uh, came wow. on about an inch of dying had severe um, adult respiratory distress syndrome, renal failure, liver failure, everything failure. Um, they, they actually attributed the fact that I was um, in good cardiovascular shape, that my heart never complained. Um, I joked to my internist after I got out of the hospital that I, you never, she never needed to put me on a treadmill because I had the 40-day stress test. Um, <laughs> So it came uh, with really with an inch of not surviving. Um, yeah. And for probably the first nine or 10 days, um, there was no good news at all. It just continually, continually got worse. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I have to, my admiration for the people who took care of me is, is um, you know, I'm unbelievably grateful. They were dealing with uncertainty. They were on chat groups with physicians in China and Italy and, trying to figure out what to do, whether to anticoagulate people. I mean, there just was profound uncertainty. Um, mm -hmm. these, clearly, these people clearly saved my life, which is what I said to them when they were lined up, when I kind of limped my way out of the hospital almost two months later. Um, I think the thing that actually did save me was um, there are a couple things. You think about patient family-centered care, uh, there were no visitors. This ICU was unbelievable. My daughter's a surgical resident, University mm -hmm. of Utah. They had her join rounds virtually every day. So she was part of the care team. And, and you know, one of the, as, as people take care of patients now, one of the biggest challenges is keeping the story straight, right? You got all these smart people. You got a lot of people coming and going on the team. And she said, you know, there are times somebody, well, you know, Dr. Leonard has asthma. And she's like, no, he doesn't have asthma. He's never had asthma, right? Mm -hmm. He has no medical problems when he walked in here. Um, but but they were remarkable in that regard. And then um, my family had kind of read about convalescent plasma, and they raised it to the team and said, if we can arrange it, will you do it? And they were actually quite pleasantly surprised because there are about 100 reasons to say no. Everybody's mm -hmm. stressed or strapped. They've never done it before. You've got to deal with the FDA regulations, et cetera. Um, and the head of the blood bank children's hospital next door said, if you can arrange it, we'll do it. And 
So uh, my daughter put out something on Facebook. Um, there were several thousand people who volunteered to donate. I mean, you talk about the goodness of humanity. I mean, there were people I'd never met in my life who were like, I'll get on an airplane and fly there to wow. donate. Um, it turned out the plasma came locally in Denver. It's, I, I don't know exactly who it is, but it was reported to be one of the emergency department physicians who'd been infected. Mm -hmm. um, they got the plasma. At that time, it had to go to Dallas for FDA clearance and for the test for lots of bad things. Um, normally, there's an airplane to Dallas about every 20 minutes from Denver, but not then. And flights were canceled and delayed, et cetera. We finally got it down there. Um, I finally got it on an airplane coming back, and it came back at 3 in the morning. Uh, the people from the blood bank physically met the airplane, um, took it from the flight crew, <clears throat> and, the, and the techs. I mean, I just get a little choked up every time it... They came in the middle of the night to process it. Mm -hmm. And um, so I got the plasma for breakfast. I know the data on convalescent plasma is equivocal. Helps some people, doesn't help others. Um, but my family and the care team are firmly convinced uh, saved my life because, you know, a couple of days later, I just slowly started to turn the other direction. Um, I woke up on day 36. Um, not surprisingly delirious. I'd had kind of gallons of Valium-like drugs, Versed, and other things because mm -hmm. I ran out of the usual sedatives. Um, and then slowly, you know, the world came into focus. Uh, I mean, it's a kind of fascinating phenomena that all of a sudden you're kind of aware you're there in a bed and you don't know why. And then your perception starts to broaden um, the first conversation I recall, I, I kind of woke up, looked up. There was a physician, happened to be the <clears throat> chairman of the Department of Medicine, sitting next to me. I was an accomplished critical care doc, and and uh, he just said, "Well, I think we're going to hold your dialysis today because your kidneys seem to be getting better." Mm. And I'm like, "Oh, what's wrong with my kidneys?" And he started this conversation about you know, gradients and concentration, countercurrents. And um, and so we started to have this physician-to-physician -physician conversation. I said, oh, so I need glomerular filtration, like renal blood flow. He goes, that's exactly what you need. And I said, okay, well, you know, I'll talk to my kidneys. So um, I started to kind of encompass um, at all kinds of lines and tubes in me, um, Ironically, being an anesthesiologist, every time they tried to wean me off the ventilator, uh, I fought it so strongly they couldn't wean me. So they had to um, put in a tracheostomy, and a day after they put in the trach, I was off the ventilator. Um, I lost 40 pounds, almost primarily muscle. Um, I literally could not stand. I was so weak. I had to uh, learn how to stand. Um, I was in... After I went to a, a step-down unit for three or four days, um, I spent eight days on inpatient rehab um, with wonderful therapists. And, you know, I, I just was pathetic in terms of strength and ability to do stuff. I mean, getting up out of a bed to a walker was kind of a major challenge, but um, we just, uh, I have the mindset of, they're like, Are you, can you do a little more? I'm like, I'll do as long as you want, because I need to get strong enough to 
get out or get out of here and go home. And then, you know, there are things like, okay, let's practice how you're going to get up if you fall on the floor. And I still had a little bit of push-up strength. Um, but activities of daily living, I mean, being able to get yourself the bathroom back was kind of a major accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say um, it was really touching on day 59 when I left. I had two therapists I was very fond of, and, and the head nurse asked me, you know, who would you like to kind of, you know, walk you out of the hospital? I mean, think about this. My family has not been able to see me for 59 days other than they were able to put a, um, a ring camera in in the ICU. My son's a techie, so he put on the hospital Wi-Fi, and the, the the nurses and docs said, "Yeah, you can have it in the room. We'll just turn it off when we're you know cleaning you and doing other things." And then we we were able to kind of talk by an iPad and FaceTime once once I was kind of mm. unconscious. Um, but you know, I, I said I want these two ladies to do this. I didn't realize it's actually kind of a big deal for them. Um, but they showed up and they they said, well, um, you know, we're going to take you out in a wheelchair, but we're, we're going to have you walk with your walker to the elevator. So here I'm with my oxygen tank. My, and I come around the corner and there's at least 100 people who've taken care of me uh, standing in the hallway clapping. And, and mm-hmm. I mean, just, you know, brought me to tears. Yeah. I said, you know, uh, I'm profoundly, eternally grateful. You saved my life, and and they did. Um, I went home to eight thousand feet. Um, I was on three liters of oxygen at rest. Um, uh, there's a my house is is forty feet from one end to the other, so I had a long oxygen cannula and an oxygen uh, concentrating machine and my walker, and and I just built up that I could walk a mile a day, forty feet at a time, back and forth. Um, you know, it just took me months. I mean, I had to gain weight. Uh, my blood count was about half of what it normally is. I was profoundly anemic. Um, but I, I'm remarkably fortunate because um, my lungs, which were severely injured, uh, are about 85 to 90% of normal. And it progressed. I've actually had significant healing of the scarring in my lungs. So I, I joke I grow two alveoli a day or air sacs, but I'm slowly, slowly kind of getting better. Um, and otherwise, I'm healthy. And I'm not one of those people that just has, uh, you know, all kinds of residual organ failure or long COVID, et cetera. I, I will tell you when I get vaccinated or boosted, it's uh, it's pretty clear that my body has seen COVID before and really doesn't like it. Um, you know, the other thing I would talk to you about is, um, you know, you never want to wish being critically ill on somebody, but um, I will tell you that uh, um, it's a profound learning. And, you know, I went from being the critical care physician. I was a cardiac anesthesiologist for 25 years. I took care of very sick people, a lot of experience standing on by the bedside in ICUs. Um, and when the critical care doc becomes a critical care patient, it's pretty humbling. Um, I, I happen to be a, a bit of an expert on teamwork and culture. And I have to say, um, you know, when you're a patient, the only cues you have as to whether you're getting good care and 
people care about you is their social, how they talk to you, how they talk to each other. Um, the teamwork and attitudes of people took care of me were remarkable. Um, remarkably collaborative, coherent, universally respectful. Um, you know, I, I think the ethos of caregivers is remarkable and unique. Um, I lay in the bed and in a pretty, shall we say, uh, injured state. But these people never hesitated to come in the room and take care of me. And I had a disease that almost killed me and could have killed them with no, no known cure. Um, and, they, and they never hesitated. Um, I, I think they're remarkable. I also am exquisitely sensitive to um, the degree of moral injury um, that's occurred among our caregivers over the last mm -hmm. two years. Um, I think they've been remarkable, but the wear and tear is significant. And one of the things I do now that I'm kind of back working in the higher liability is we measure culture. And, and there's been a lot of injury, a lot of damage to, to the good folks who care for people like me. Right, right. Well, that's certainly a story of triumph. And I'm curious, in the moments where it, you weren't sure if you were going to make it, I'm sure you had more than one of those moments. Did your medical background provide any sense of comfort? Well, yeah, it, it, it's a great question. The, so the paradox in this is, I, I mean, I, I joke that I was kind of like Rip Van Winkle. I went in there and slept for five weeks. I, I mean, I was completely unconscious. I have no memory from the time I walked into the emergency room um, until I woke up um, 36 days later. Hmm. Uh, I think what was brutal, and I'm exquisitely sensitive um, to, frankly, the emotional trauma of my wife, my son, my daughter, my right. family. I have a number of brothers and sisters who are physicians. Um, they live this hour to hour. And, and to see somebody critically ill, things looked pretty quite bleak for quite a while. Mm -hmm. And you can't even go in there and see somebody. You can't hold their hand. You can't be present. Um, and it, it's, it's just hard, right? I, I mean, if you want to have a description of absolutely no control of the situation um, and just trusting in the people that take care of you, um, they did. It is, you know, brutally hard for families. I had the occasion to talked to a bunch of the nurses, I was getting better. They said the hardest thing for them was patients who were not surviving was having the conversations with the family um, over right. FaceTime, right? The people could not go there. I, I don't think I even realized how sick I was until probably four or five days before I left the hospital and I was on the rehab unit. Um, this lovely nurse came in one night and you know, I, she introduced herself and I introduced myself. I said, it's nice to meet you. And this was a reasonably common occurrence. And I'd say, it's nice to meet you. And they're like, oh, we've met. <laughs> you were just <laughs> unconscious, right? Uh, we know we know you well. Um, and, I, and I said to her, I guess I was a pretty sick puppy. And she paused for a second. She just said, you were the sickest. And we gave you about mm. a 5 to 6% chance of survival. Um, wow. And, you know, I, I, 
I, I, you know, even in that unconscious state, I'm, I'm pretty tough and stubborn. And um, I came pretty close to not being here, but my cardiovascular system never gave out. I mean, it, the, the real central question for my daughter, because I had, you know, really low oxygen levels and it was hard to adequately oxygenate. And my, my lungs were just an incredible battlefield between my immune system and, and COVID. She said, mm -hmm. you know, she, she's a surgical resident. She takes care of ICU patients. She said, I've never seen worse ARDS. I mean, your lungs were wow. just whited out. Um, and she, so when I got out of the hospital, she came to visit from Salt Lake and, and, you know, she, she basically interrogated me for about a half an hour. And at the end of it, she goes, you're all there, right? Cause, cause they were really scared that I'd, I'd have, um, you know, <clears throat> I wouldn't be firing on all cylinders intellectually afterwards. Um, mm -hmm. but, but, you know, I would say that what, the gift to this is a sense of pervasive gratitude. Um, it was an absolute demonstration of humanity and, and kindness and the people who took care of me and took care of my family. Um, and, and I just, you know, I, I, the only thing I can do is see the goodness in the world. And, you know, my daughter at one point said, you know, if you ever want to kind of, go through what happened to you clinically while you were asleep for five weeks. I just said, you know, I think I'd rather look out the windshield than the rearview mirror. Um, I'm here in one piece, courtesy of you all, courtesy right. of the very smart and skilled people who took care of me. Um, I think we just need to move forward. And, yeah. and But I did... You know, what was interesting is, is I went through three months of pulmonary rehab, which was mm. super helpful. And that's essentially high intensity interval training um, in quotes. When I started, I wasn't doing anything high intensity, but mm -hmm. over three months, I went from being able to exercise an elliptical six minutes with rests throughout that six minutes to three months later, 45 minutes sustained with almost no oxygen. And there were two other um, great folks who'd been through COVID, um, not in the hospitals long, only one had been ventilated, and they just were debilitated. I mean, one of, them, one of them, when he started, could literally almost not walk on a treadmill at two miles mm. an hour. So, wow. So the, it, you know, the wear and tear on this is remarkable. I was reading there's almost 11 million people in America with long COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I continue to, I mean, I have wonderful doctors and, and I tend to ask them things. I had some smoldering kind of liver injury. And, and so I've had MRIs with contrast to my biliary tree and it's normal, et cetera. And I'm talking to guys who are super smart and I'm like, where's this going to go? And they're like, we have no idea, right? Yeah. We're, we're still learning. So, right. um, happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from that experience, it sounds like you took a lot away on a, an emotional, personal level. Professionally, what do you think, the, what did you gain from it on a professional level and how you operate in providing care? Well, I, I, it just reinforced, I think, the things I've learned over the years. Um, 
and, and I've lived in the world of risk management, very large systems like Kaiser. So I've had mm -hmm. way too many conversations with patients and families after something's gone terribly wrong. Um, and sometimes we did what was right after what went wrong. And sometimes we we started with absolutely the wrong conversation. I, I just have, it's in my DNA to, to be honest and open with people. And, and particularly after we've, you know, unintentionally hurt them. I think mm -hmm. the, there's a few takeaways and I think they're absolutely critical now. One, one is we have to have effective leadership in organizations that is present, listens to people, fixes things and shows they care for the people mm -hmm. that work as hard as they do. We need, you know, we need to have huddles and people. So members of the team know the plan. You need to have cultures where you feel like you're part of something not I'm in here by myself, because those are very, very different um, perceptions. And if I feel like I'm by myself and I'm a victim, then burnout is, is you know, in your future um, very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to have processes of care that, that frankly support the ability of, of these good people to care for patients. And often we just make it hard, right? And there's a lot of things we do that just don't make sense. And there's a lot of non-value work. Um, one of the conversations that I, that I is appropriately, you know, front and center right now is we've had a lot of people leave the bedside. We've had a lot of nurses leave. About 3% of the national nursing workforce left the workforce last month in December. Mm -hmm. um, there are four traveling nursing jobs in America for every available traveling nurse. And um, so I'm not sure we're ever going to have the people we had, the numbers of them. Uh, I am absolutely, you know, grateful. And I should think we're indebted to the people that are still there, um, fighting this, this pandemic. And, and I can't imagine, I mean, having been a critical care physician that 80 or 90% of the people they're taken care of that are frankly at, at risk of not surviving or changing their lives in the wrong way. It's because they made a choice not to get vaccinated. And I think a lot of that choice, sadly, is as a result of polarization and misinformation. So it's one thing when you're taking care of somebody like me, when we don't know where this came from and you can't fix it. I think it's particularly hard a year or two later when there's an answer for it uh, that fixes 90% of it and, and the majority of people that, you know, they're underwater with have made a decision. And I'm not saying that to be judgmental. I mean, personally, it's a bad decision, but I, I understand the reasons and I understand that I don't think a lot of these people really understand the implication of, of being resistant to that. So, right. so we have to take care of the workforce and mm -hmm. And I, and the paradox of the challenge now is, I don't think we've ever been less capable or well positioned to fundamentally change our workflow and how we care for patients. But I think we have to, because we can't continue to do what we're doing because we don't have right. the people to do it well. So, so um, hard questions, but important ones.
Absolutely. Yeah. And you mentioned burnout. And just to go back to that really quickly, we know that getting vaccinated and and following the public safety protocol that slows the spread of COVID is one of the ways that you can support our burnt out healthcare workforce. Being in the position of a doctor and now also having been a patient, what other advice would you give for people to support their healthcare heroes in their local communities? Yeah, I, well, the first thing they can do that you spoke to is getting vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as I said earlier, I mean, somebody in my age range, you're 50 times less likely currently to end up in the hospital, the risk of dying if you have been vaccinated. Um, we know, I mean, the science is remarkable. And when, you know, I have a deep personal interest in this, that the immunologists and scientists that came up with mRNA vaccines in a remarkably short period of time. This was not a new subject. Now, these people have been studying this for 20 years, from SARS mm-hmm. to MERS to, to COVID. So, so the science is remarkably sound. Um, I think, you know, one is you, you just make it a whole lot easier if you, if you are vaccinated. I was reading an article by an ICU doc in the Midwest in the last couple of weeks. And he said, the one question I ask when they call and say somebody's being admitted with COVID is vaccinated or unvaccinated. That's a big fork in the road of like, they'll do well, or here we go again, was something that's that's frankly life-threatening, right? And, right. And, you know, I have, I have colleagues and friends who, I mean, I was on a phone call with a friend last night. She says, you know, my friend's husband is in a hospital in Colorado and you know, he's on a ventilator for three weeks. And and mm. first question I asked was, is he vaccinated? And the answer is no. Right. So so that makes it a whole lot, whole lot easier. I, I think the other piece of this, and, and I you know, I've been vaccinated and boosted. I I'm every time I go out, I'm an N ninety five mask, right? And yet there's this mindset of people of like, well, I'm done with COVID. And I'm like, well, here's the bad news. COVID's not done with you, right? Mm-hmm. And and I, you know, I've had three infections in my immediate family uh, and my kids um, and others in, in the last 10 days. And thankfully they've been, they're all vaccinated. So it's been mild, like a head cold. Mm-hmm. Um, so I understand that we're, really, really tired of this. Um, but there's some really basic things you can do. And and social distancing and masks and vaccinations are absolutely critical. And, and yet the behaviors that I observe every day, I mean, I can go to Home Depot or I, you know, I can go to the grocery store and, you know, at best 10 or 20% of people wearing masks. And, and um, so our challenge is um, the politicization and quote unquote, my freedom has translated into risks that, that risk really injuring severely our, our healthcare system and ability to take care of patients. And, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I've had two instances of people I know well where their spouses quote unquote made a choice to be unvaccinated and, and I said, well, I was thinking, I mean, you can only be kind to people at a time of 
you know, critical to us, what went through my mind is, you know, that this one wife said he made an individual, he made a personal decision. And I'm like, well, he made a decision that dragged you right in the middle of it. The whole family's there and he didn't survive. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so I don't, it's hard to message to people how important those decisions are. And, you know, this is no surprise to the good folks who care for patients in Michigan. They're, they're up to the ears in this um, mm-hmm. every day. I, I will tell you a couple of things that I think are valuable. And we've seen this because we actively work with organizations through COVID. Um, we measure, our company measures culture across Michigan hospitals through MHA, but 700 hospitals in total in America. Um, we've got a couple examples of, of cultures that have gotten better through COVID. And it's a combination of systematic, effective leader rounding presence. And the key word with capital letters in that is once you go out and talk to people and you listen to them, because the wisdom's at the bedside, the people are delivering care every day. Right. You act on their concerns and you and you come back to them with an answer. And and you know, ironically, we did a study with folks in MHA six years ago across 30 hospitals in Michigan and 17,000 caregivers asking about the effectiveness of leader rounding. And there were 30 point differences. I mean, difference mm. between 40% positive and 70% positive. When people said, I participated in rounds, I never heard back. Those were the 40% positive versus they came back and talked to us. They didn't have a magic wand, but they acted on our concerns. Those are massively different cultures to walk into. One is positive. One's collaborative. It makes you feel better. You're part of something bigger. We know statistically they deliver better care. They have lower burnout, lower absenteeism, lower turnout, happier patients, as opposed to the other dynamic of I'm by myself trying to get through the day. That's a very bad place to live. Um, and, And it's frankly not healthy. What has also come out in that is the insights from the frontline caregivers of um, we're, this has gone on so long, don't come up here and have happy talk, right? Because there's not anything happy to talk about. But what's really important to us is act on the concerns that are going to help us get through the next hour, the next shift, and the next day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you hear things, you know, like we don't have cartridges for the printer, right? The doors can't get fixed. I don't have this. And, and those are fixable things. And, and we've shown actually through, through systematic work and some organizations, people getting better, right? As a result of that, because mm-hmm. they feel absolutely supported. I think the other piece for us not to forget is this has been extraordinarily stressful on hospital leaders. And they are there by themselves, right? Because they don't mm-hmm. have a lot of people to, to go talk to the, the other piece, you know, having studied burnout for a long time is before COVID, you know, you always had somewhere in your life, for the most part, that was stable for you or safe. And when, if things weren't great at home, then you had the hospital. Then weren't great at the hospital, then you had your family and personal life. Well, you know, I, I've debriefed hospital leaders in, in the last year, had to lay off nurses and doctors because of financial mm-hmm. duress in the Midwest, and then, then you're not safe anywhere, right? Right. It's like, I'm losing my job. Or even if you do have a job, you go home, your kids are out of school, your significant other may have lost their job, 
Am I going to keep my house, etc.? I mean, this is is just brutal. Mm-hmm. So leaders, you know, in simple things. I, I mean, I've, I have the privilege of talking to a, host, a lot of hospital CEOs across the country. You know, last month, uh, in two conversations in these groups, and one say, I don't have a clinical background, but I put on scrubs and I go up to the ICU and I help them turn patients, mm-hmm. right? which is incredibly powerful, right? You know, mm-hmm. the person who runs our hospital cares enough to come up and physically help us. And then another one says, I was up around in the ICU and they're like, you know, what could I do that would be helpful to you like right now? And he's like, they're like, well, the microwave's broken. He literally drives to Target and buys a microwave and brings it in the box mm-hmm. to the ICU, right? So, so all those things of we care, we're present, we don't want to get in the way, but we're here, right? We're here together. Yeah. And I also think teamwork becomes critical, right? Mm-hmm. Do you know the plan of care? Do you know what's supposed to happen? Do you feel like you're there with your colleagues, you know, and here's the plan and here's where we're going. And yeah, it's tough, but I can tap you on the shoulder. We're all in this together. And when I raise my hand and tell the leadership, things get addressed and get fixed because then I have a sphere of influence, right? Mm-hmm. I have some control. If I keep, if I'm alone and I keep raising concerns and nobody ever addresses them, then I, then logically people, and this was true before COVID, it's just, you know, kind of on steroids now is, well, you know, you don't care, I don't care, nobody cares about me, nothing's getting fixed. Mm-hmm. Now you're a victim, right? I, I also think, I've already come to the conclusion, I mean, I mean one of the, the organizations we have the privilege of working with is the military health system. And, and so we have some insight into the, the after effects of, of service people who've been through a lot in other parts of the world, um, which is hard and often um, brutal. Um, I've really come to the conclusion of late that probably burnout is not an adequate descriptor for what our docs and nurses and respiratory therapists and everybody else are going through. I really think it's more a concept of moral injury Mm-hmm. And moral injury stems from when you're deeply dedicated to doing something. And, and doctors and nurses and other people, they train for years and are deeply committed to doing what's right for patients. And then when you're put in a situation where you can't do that, or, you know, I mean, the, you know, we now have situations, patients <clears throat> so sick in the ICU, they normally have two nurses per patient, but there's our short staff that, now it's one nurse for four critically ill patients or they're in the hallways or, you know, I mean, there are times I've been parked in the ambulances outside. That's really hard. That's really yeah. hard to live with, right? Yeah. To, to feel that sense of I can't do what I'm supposed to do and people are suffering as a result of it. I think the other part, um, which is frankly, you know, nuts to put it politely is, is now with all this politicization and, you know, I need ivermectin or horse paste and, you know, now families are aggressive. I mean, there was just a a patient who was flown from the Midwest to Texas because, you know, the, the, the wife is like, you're killing my husband and you won't give him ivermectin, et cetera. And I, I mean, the last week, I mean, I've, I've heard caregivers say, you know, I come out of a room and the 
you know, the patent and family is, you know, hostile or physically threatening. I mean, in Montana, you know, for example, in, in November, December, they put National Guard in the hospitals, mm. right, because of all the conflict from the families who are getting all this misinformation. And they don't come in and say, thank you, thank you, thank you for what you do and, and trying to save my family member. They come in and say, you know, I don't trust you. You're doing harm. I mean, that, that's a terrible place to be. So, mm -hmm. um, so we have, we have some things to address and, and, and yet this is finite, right? It will be over. It will be better. I think we need to think back to June of 2021 when we were down at 8,000 cases a day in the United States and life seemed normal and people are getting vaccinated. And, and here we are, at a hundred times the case rate, um, but it seems to have peaked, fingers crossed, and, and uh, this too will pass. But um, I, I have nothing but admiration and gratitude for the people who get up every day and, and do this. And I have the privilege of helping or working with a whole bunch of those off the, across the country. But having been one of those people in the bed, um, uh, you know, they, they have my eternal gratitude and admiration because I'm, I'm here because of them and very clearly uh, would not have been. Absolutely. And, and you provide really important insight, um, both from the clinical side and the patient side. I, I, I can't wrap my brain around your experience um, and how uh, scary that must have been, even having the medical background that you do. Um, and, and you bring up some great points about burnout. And I think the biggest takeaway for people in the community listening is the best way to help our healthcare workforce who's struggling with burnout is to educate yourself about COVID-19 and about the COVID-19 vaccines and do everything you can to keep yourself and your loved ones and members of your community out of the hospital. Um, so just to, to switch gears a little bit, uh, quite a few months back, we spoke with Dr. Lydia Watson, who's with My Michigan Health, um, and she address some myths that exist around the COVID-19 vaccine. So I'm curious now, fast forward to 2022, from your perspective, what are some of the most common misconceptions that you're hearing? Well, you know, there, there's a variety of silliness from, you know, they're putting microchips in and, you know, I'm going to be magnetic and, you know, I put spoons against my head and, and, you know, they come from aborted children. They don't. They come from fetal cell lines. There's a whole bunch of things and medicines that are very, very commonly used in American medicine that have comparable origin. And then it's this whole, like, well, they're new, right? And let me give you a simple example. I, I have some dear family friends for many years, and they run a small company in Denver. They have about 40 employees. And, and um you know, they asked me in the spring, they said, you know, we don't want to bother you, but could you just do a Zoom meeting for our 40 people? Because there's some vaccine hesitancy. And and I said, I'm happy to do this, but, you know, it'll be a lot more productive if you actually ask them why they're hesitant. And, and there were a lot of very valid questions. You know, there were people who said, I'm a parent and I can't get vaccinated and my children can't get vaccinated, so why should I? And so, well, you should, because then they are far less likely to get infected. You're protecting them. 
Mm-hmm. There are a couple of women that, you know, I'm pregnant or I'm planning to get pregnant. What, what would the impact to this be? And, and the evidence is extremely clear that you are far safer to have a normal pregnancy with a healthy child if you're vaccinated. And by the way, um, when you're vaccinated and you're breastfeeding, you're passing antibodies to your child, right? Mm-hmm. So you protect them. Um, there's this whole thing of, well, it's new and we don't know enough about it. I mean, you know, you go on the Rockefeller University website and look at, listen to some of the webinars from world-class immunologists. Um, these guys have been thinking about this for a long time, like 20 or 30 years. Mm-hmm. And they are way ahead. I mean, they, they weren't writing the playbook. When this came, they knew exactly what it was, how to do it how to think ahead. They're growing the virus. They're looking for resistance and mutants. They're way, way ahead. And and mm-hmm. I think it is a remarkable story um, of the ability to deal with a problem and massively produce an extraordinarily safe vaccine. Mm-hmm. There, there have been, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, what's the risk of a young person? They got heart inflammation or myocarditis. When you stack that up against a thousand or a million young people who get COVID versus the vaccine, the myocarditis is much milder. It goes away. It doesn't leave mm-hmm. any permanent effects. And it is far, far less frequent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, just just this hesitancy. And, I, you know, the, the other part that... Um, you know, maybe use an analogy that if you had a severe infection like sepsis, how many people stay home and say, I don't want antibiotics? Right. Right. And there's this human trait of, you know, and a lot of this is just a reflection of our less than functional political dynamic of, oh, it's like the flu and it's mild and it won't bother you. You know, well, you know, from the day we got COVID, there was a one and a half, two percent chance of dying from it. Right. When I got COVID, just statistically at a 5% chance of getting severe illness. And it just, it came very, it came with an inch of killing me. And, and so people tend to kind of, for some reason, which is really interesting because humans are far more likely to perceive risk as being larger than it actually is. Mm-hmm. Right? They respond much more to risk. And you could say that's probably evolutionary that if you see a tiger and you're you're out in the jungle you're like that could eat me right so we're we're much more risk averse than than we are reward kind of centric but somehow it just got planted of it's like the flu won't happen to me i don't need it and then there are all these you know frankly um false information. And, and, you know, for example, when I was talking to these people in this company, there were some very valid questions of what about my kids and what if I'm pregnant and this and that. And then I, you know, one person said, well, I have friends who work in healthcare and they say the vaccine's dangerous and not effective. And I said, well, with all due respect, let me say this politely, they're wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm an Ivy League trained physician. I've done this for 20 years. There is no doubt in my mind this is extremely valuable and this world would be a much, much bigger mess if we didn't have 
vaccine. I think there's also this whole sense of, I mean, one, the whole ivermectin thing. Somebody's gotten rich out of it. They sold $130 million worth ivermectin in the, in the last calendar year, and the horses are angry because they can't get it. Um, it's, whole, it's completely ineffective, right? And then there's this, this whole thing of, well, if I get it, I'll get monoclonal antibodies. And, and I literally have a friend who was saved by monoclonal antibodies, right? He mm -hmm. was a poster boy for, you get COVID, you'll turn blue and not be here. Mm -hmm. And he got them and they saved his life. Well, the problem with monoclonal antibodies is there are three different varieties and two of them are completely ineffective against the Omicron variant. Mm. And there's a shortage of type number three. And because the United States, for, for whatever reasons, has been really um, not done a good job, I'm gonna try and be as polite as I can, in testing or sequencing the variants. I mean, th think about China. Now, China is a different dynamic, but you know they got an outbreak in a city, they test 14 million people every day, mm -hmm. right? They got a lot of tests. They're not like us, like running to Walgreens and like, do you have some home tests? And probably you do, and probably most likely you don't. So the lack of testing, the lack of integrating testing as a systematic response, and then we're incapable, uh, you know, other than a state lab, which is gonna do it infrequently and take longer to say, you have Delta, variant, which is responsive to all these monoclonal antibodies versus you have Omicron, and some of these things aren't going to work. Well, to go back to the myths, I know one argument we're still hearing is uh, that natural immunity is an alternative to the vaccine. So I'm curious, as someone who's recovered from COVID-19, do you still recommend getting vaccinated? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, there's recent data that basically says you're you're far better protected with vaccination than you are with natural immunity, right? And and again, there's there's been variable news reports within the last week of natural immunities. Well, well, think about it, how you get natural immunity. In natural immunity, by getting sick and have a two percent chance of dying, mm -hmm. getting some unspecified risk of having long COVID, where your life may never be the same. I mean, I, I've read accounts of people. <clears throat> excuse me, they're you know, emergency medicine physicians who got long COVID, they can't work, right? Their cognitive abilities are gone, right? Mm -hmm. To at least perform at that level. So, so this whole, like, it's nothing, if you survive, you're protected. Well, you know, maybe one or 2% where you don't survive, but if you're the one, that's 100%, right? And so you're gonna lose some people, you're gonna have some people who are chronically ill as a result of that, um, mm -hmm. I'm unfortunately in the club where I have both, right? Mm -hmm. And and so prior infection plus vaccination is an optimal answer. Um, but but you know what's interesting about Omicron is, and when it came out of South Africa, the scientists were like flabbergasted that it has like 30 plus mutations, and and probably the best explanation for that is there's a lot of people with chronic um, HIV in Africa. Mm -hmm. And so the speculation is that Omicron developed in an immunocompromised population where it had a lot of ability to grow and mutate, right? Um, but what's very clear is the mRNA viruses are extremely effective if, if you get Omicron 
it's mild and it really doesn't get into your lungs where, um, you know, the, the organs are most susceptible to, to COVID are the ones with the highest blood flow, lungs, kidney, liver, etc. cetera. Um, yes, uh, you know, there's, there's no good fact-based explanation that says I'm better getting infected and I'm gonna be better protected than I am by challenging my immune system with an mRNA vaccine. And, and if you really know something, I mean, my, my dad was an immunologist at the NIH for 40 some years, really understand the immunology of these vaccines. Um, it's a remarkable accomplishment of science. Mm-hmm. And we also know that hospitals are currently reporting that 85 to 95% of uh, those currently hospitalized with COVID have not had their booster shots yet. So that data kind of speaks for itself. Well, that's very true. That, no, this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Mm-hmm. And not only, you know, with Omicron, the age range shifted. I mean, it was really the 20 to 50-year-olds, right? Mm-hmm. So, so it's all the people of like, I'm totally healthy, it won't happen to me, um, that are unvaccinated. The, the other thing that's that's worth mentioning this is there's a lot of protection in being boosted, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you when you get a booster shot, those antibody levels go up close to 100 fold. And, and you, you just want all the protection you can find. I mean, th- this is a nasty virus. It's killed and maimed a lot of people. Um, and we have a pretty good answer. We have a remarkably good answer. And uh, the fact that we haven't figured out how to utilize it and a whole bunch of other shall we say, you know, kind of, shall we say, creative conversations come into of why we're not going to do that is, is really holding us back and, and hurting and killing a lot of people. And I, I would also say the, what people really need to realize is the damage being done and the wear and tear on the people staffing our clinics and hospitals is severe and, and, it, and we may not recover from it in the way that we think we are, right? It, mm-hmm. I don't think we're going to go back to normal. Uh, we, we've really damaged a lot of people along the way. Mm, definitely, yeah. Well, we certainly appreciate you setting the record straight on some of those misconceptions, um, and we encourage anyone who has questions to contact a local doctor or a pharmacist. So I'll just close today's episode with a question that I can imagine others may still have, and that is, what is your advice to start a meaningful conversation with someone who is still vaccine hesitant? You know, I, I think the way I would approach that is to to do what's important for the people you love and your family. Um, and I, you know, I've talked to people who are, shall we say, selective about science, right? I. Yeah, my, my son was sick and, you know, had a bone infection and we did antibiotics for six weeks, but I know better, we know better, I choose not to be vaccinated. I, I think there's part of it, which is one is this is not only about you, which is if you're not vaccinated, you're actually a risk to your family and community. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other piece that sadly I've experienced twice is, and these are in families where everybody else is vaccinated except, you know, the adult male. And one of them died and one of them's been on a ventilator for 20 days. Mm. And, and so you can, quote unquote, 
you know, it's framed as freedom or my choice. But in the, you know, unlikely event that it ends poorly, you're affecting, you've changed everybody else's life and frankly, not for the better. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I just piggyback off that and say that sometimes there are circumstances where people may be vaccine hesitant, as you mentioned, for legitimate reasons. They may have legitimate questions. So just being sensitive to that and and trying to educate as much as you can and and point them in the direction of the people, the experts, the health experts like yourself. Yeah, I no, I think that's a really important point. You know, I I had a conversation with one of my physicians who's truly an expert. He's a liver transplant physician and he's kind of followed me for my liver um and, and you know he's been at it for 25 years and he just said i never thought i would experience a time when where where science wasn't trusted mm-hmm. right and and you know you think about being a doctor and you spend between medical school and residency you spend eight ten twelve years learning how to do this and you're deeply committed to doing what's right for people Mm-hmm. And and now there's all this skepticism of you don't know what you're doing. There are all kinds of other implications nobody ever dreamed of. I mean, you know, 10 to 15 percent of, of lung transplants now are going to unvaccinated COVID patients, mm. right, whose lungs were so injured. And most of these people, they not only end up on ventilators, they ended up on, you know, ECMO or cardiopulmonary bypass and they survived. But you know, you could be somebody who did everything right with cystic fibrosis and and now lungs aren't available, right? So mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a lot of, just because you don't see it doesn't mean there aren't downstream implications that, you know, we're paying somewhere. And I, and I would say for vaccine hesitancy, um, you know, it's an old business saying you're going to pay somewhere. And I would say we're paying in the wrong place right now. Mm. Yeah. Well, Dr. Leonard, we can't thank you enough for being a guest on the podcast today, and um, I'll look forward to seeing you at Breakthrough. Absolutely. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Absolutely. And anyone who is interested, again, in attending or registering for Breakthrough um, can head to mha.org, or if it's easier, we've provided the link in the description below. Uh, But I think that covers it. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to the My Care Champion Cast. To learn more or get involved, visit mycarematters.org. That's mycarematters.org.